We recorded this episode earlier this year. Her book, A Ghost in Shining Honor, is out now. Check our show notes for a link to purchase. And if you love romantic witchy books, check out Witchful Thinking by Celestine Martin. Hello and welcome to Watch With You podcast. I am Lady H. With me, I have Lady D. Hi, everybody. Today, we have a very special guest. Therese Fahari is a South African romance author of several acclaimed novels, including her One Day to Forever series. A star in a dark night, she takes pride in writing diverse characters and settings, and her books are full of sparkling banter, laughter, and heart. She lives in Cape Town with her husband, her inspiration for every hero she writes, and two adorable baby boys. Therese, you honor us with your presence. Thank you for joining us. And before Thank you we so ta- much for having me. Sorry. Thank oh, you no. for having me. Thank you. So before we dive in, what would you like our audience to know about you? Firstly, that's the most beautiful way I've ever been introduced. Like you, you was, your voice is gorgeous. Okay. <laughs> um, so thank you for that. Uh, I think you've said it all. I've been writing for um, over six years now professionally. And I, I've, it's been a journey for me as well. So I'm very happy to share some of that with you all today. Very good. Alrighty, so as a podcast, we lean in and hone in on the genius of Black women, Black women creatives, Black women in media, how they are portrayed and how they are created. And your bio says that you take pride in writing about diverse books. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm obviously South African, and when I was growing up, I did not get to see any characters who looked like me. So, you know, my primary source of reading came from the library, and unfortunately, yeah, we are still uh, very much reliant on donations. We don't have um, a system where we can request books, uh, we, or, you know, we don't even have an ebook lending system here for the, for the most part. Mm-hmm. So we were reliant on books that people were donating, and most people who were donating books were the privileged in South Africa, which is still, for a large part, um, the white population. And so I was concerned consuming a lot of white media when I was growing up and it took me a really long time to I think I was an adult already before I actually started uh, reading and becoming really invested in our stories and so it's become incredibly important to me to write those stories that I didn't see for the next generation and hopefully um, be able to share experiences that they haven't shared they haven't seen um, shared you know, for themselves. Do you see a difference between using the terminology of diverse books and own voices? I think so. For me, own voices is marginalized voices, um, writing about marginalized experiences. And I don't think that's uh, necessarily only days. But for me, diverse very specifically means race. In my view, um, I've, of course, used it as an umbrella term. But in my experience, it is very sort of um, linked to, to race and specifically to Black women because, you know, I've, I have not seen us be very happy in media, right? And mm. so I feel like it's an act of defiance to write happy Black women um, and happy black couples. I, I'm very honored to be able to do that and to contribute to this new movement I think we're seeing, especially in romance, of actually embracing and celebrating uh, voices of black women and people of color. So for me, it's a, it's a very personal thing. I think I don't gender, I don't think it's like genderly understood. I don't necessarily think there's a difference in the way those two terms are understood more generally, but for me, very specifically, it does have that nuance to it. I'm glad you said that because I was really taking it as a specificity within one's race. So for me, own voices 
as applied to you would be saying, I'm a South African writer talking about South, not South African woman, whereas me, like we're both black women or mixed race, I don't want to assume. And so for me as a black woman, I cannot write about a South African black woman because that's not my own voice and experience because we're not a monolith. And like, I'm super sensitive about it because I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. And one of our greatest exports is the HBO show, The Wire. Uh And as an example, there are a lot of um, assumptions about Baltimore and Baltimoreans through this television show, which was written for dramatic effect and through the white gaze. So uh-huh. when the Baltimore uprisings happened in 2015, a lot of media went to The Wire as this text of analysis and brought up this truth. And places like CNN and the New York Times and other, um, I would say like national and also international media sources wanted to get quotes, not from people on the ground, not from residents and communities here in Baltimore, but from the actors of The Wire. I love Idris Ilba. What can mm. I tell you about Baltimore? Absolutely. I think that's true for a lot of the representation we see in media. Uh, I, you know, we, I think we're fortunate because in South Africa, we have a very robust media, sort of, so television, series, and all of those things that are very specifically catered to our culture here. Um, mm. But even within South Africa, there's a lot of diversity. We have um, different race groups and, you know, our, our race groups are very set. It's, it's become a culture because of what happened not so long ago. In 1994 was the first mm-hmm. time, you know, when we actually overthrew the apartheid government. So our system of segregation was only abolished in 1994. And so a lot of our family members and, you know, my parents weren't allowed to go to university. They had very few options for uh, what they were going to do, you know, so it's not that far away, basically. It's it's something that we still live with in our society and our society is still molded according to that, you know, and we're still healing from it, even though it's been almost 30 years now. But it's honestly, it, you know, we have a lot of media that is written by the same people who are being represented in there. And that, um, I agree with you, 100% is of utmost importance. It is also, um, I think, because you can even tell, I mean, it's so funny because someone like Trevor Noah, who is South African, you know, I've seen him live when he was, before he he became a part of American society and American culture, you know, we see him and and the portrayals he did of, of, races you know because he's mixed race Mm -hmm. but but his parents are black and white and so that mixed race is quite different from my culture which is mixed race from mixed race right so both my parents are mixed my grandparents are mixed and so we've kind of developed a very different culture to someone who is coming from both a white and black experience. And that's kind of in society, in our society as a whole, they call us colored. Um, it's not something that I don't think it has the same pain that is used in, when, when the term's used in America, it's kind of very accepted here. We had white, we had colored, we have black, and then we have uh, Indian. And those are sort of the four main groups. You know, the, the if you have to go into do paperwork, and the block you tick, those are the four main blocks that we get. And so when Trevor would imitate the colored community, he would do it very stereotypically. And it was very clear that he was doing it as someone who's not part of it. So even though he looked like us, he didn't necessarily share the same culture and the same nuance. And so I think it's important not only to have a representation, but to have a wide range of representation, because yes, the people he was portraying is... Um, exist and that's important but we're also looking at people who look differently to what he was portraying you know and I think that's the same in in romance 
and why we have these conversations quite often, I think, in the romance is we don't only want to have one kind of representation of Black mm-hmm. women, of people of color, of neurodivergence, of, you know, sexuality and gender. We want a spectrum of it because that's the same that white people get. And so mm-hmm. for me, I, w- I would love to contribute to that. I think my the book that we are going to talk about today and they lived happily ever after um that is an own voices book and it's very specifically an own voices book because the main character is south african uh she's a romance author she is a woman of color and she has an anxiety disorder and all of those things are things that she shares with me and so that was why I was very specific about it being on voices and why I didn't mind it being called that when we were, you know, selling it and, and um, marketing it. So I think it's, it's exactly what you're saying. There's, you miss out on something if you don't actually have the representation from that community. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's so well said and is so important. And I look for that more and more. Mm-hmm. I, as an academic, I don't want to hear an analysis of someone else's culture. I want to hear it from a person within the culture so that in group and not an out group. So Mm -hmm. I, and like you said, we're not a monolith. I mean, here we are and we share some things, I'm sure, but we're very different. And so for me to be able to just get a peek into the life of someone who is neurodivergent, someone who is um, a part of the African diaspora in a different way, someone who may speak another language, someone who may eat something differently, but they, but most importantly, to read and share in her joy can't be understated. Uh, Before we move into the book, Lady D, did you have a question? Well, I did, but then I think it was answered, so we're good. I'm so sorry. This is going to happen a lot. Okay. I'm going to talk and talk and talk. <laughs> and we'll cover all of the questions. Oh, no, that's it's perfect. Fine. It's fine. And interrupt me. I'm um, very excited to share <laughs> all of these things. You know, it's funny because a lot of the time we don't really, you know, you don't get the space to talk very specifically about this part of mm-hmm. writing. Um, it's so seeing to be able to discuss your entire experience you know not just the one part of it because my publishing experience is a is um a lot a lot of it's been affected by my days but with, when you go into a podcast you know you're not supposed to talk about that you're supposed to talk about uh, the books and how you wrote this specific book it's not necessarily a, a holistic view so I'm very grateful for this space. Thank you. And so I will talk a lot is essentially what I'm saying. <laughs> if you let oh, me, please get out me. <laughs> oh, no, we will. Because one of the yeah. things I'm going to say is like, before we ended, is your heart and mind, are they clear? So I want you to be able to say like, no, I said what I said. And just to get it all out. And I said, oh, I wish I said none of that, you know. You mm-hmm. definitely have the time and the space to do that. And I think it is so important because we are saying, Lady D and I are saying that we are being deliberate in our um, in our focus and mm-hmm. saying we're going to give space to Black women in media and give it a loving critique. We definitely stand on the shoulders of Bell Hooks, but to say what is there and to take a look at the differences and how we are written about how we are cast and look for the joys. I know that that's, that's a huge part for me is like, why is, especially in American media, black women have a hard time being represented without going through a lot of struggle, strife, pain. And what's some of the fun offering? Oh, Oh, you do? I, I agree with you completely. I was thinking about um, black women in media and, you know, so we've, we've been adapting a lot more romance novels, mm-hmm. you know, recently to television mm-hmm. and even the, the portrayals are so fraught, like we don't, and even if there is happiness, we don't get to be happy, you know, without it coming at a cost. Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, if I think of something like Bridgerton, which obviously everyone's talking about and talking about the diversity in it, uh, you know, the two black women in there, 
Queen Charlotte is obviously is in a powerful position. She's in a relationship with a man who is not, um, who's in going through a mental decline with his mm-hmm. memory. Um, and Lady Danbury is, is a widow. And so even though she's content with that, we don't get to see, you know, the, the wonderfully sort of a joyous happiness that other people get to see without it coming at that cost. We, I mean, I just want to see, I, I would love to see Queen Charlotte be powerful and be happy in a romantic relationship. You know, why can't we see that? Um, like, sorry, so I'm, I watch mainly at this point, you know, where I can fit in while I'm watching my sons. And a lot of what I'm looking for is are these romance uh, series that are being adapted. But firstly, the, the series that are being adapted come overwhelmingly from white authors. And mm-hmm. then they, when they get adapted, we have diversity added into it because I think the showrunners are aware that the world does not look as overwhelmingly white as the books depict. Um, But we don't get the joy, you know, that we deserve in those depictions. Um, So Sweet Magnolias is another one that I've watched that's on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Black woman, um, she's one of the very few Black people in that show. And she is in a relationship um, and she, you know, spoilers, please, whoever hasn't seen this, um, she is desperate to fall pregnant, and she does. And I knew at the beginning of that, the new season, when it came out after we learned that she was pregnant, I was like, something is going to go wrong. Because I could already tell from the beginning that something is going to go wrong because we are not allowed to be happy mm-hmm. in the same mm-hmm. way that other people are allowed to be happy. And of course, something does go wrong. And I just, I wished it didn't. Like there was such a deep part of me that wished that we could just be happy and have that, you know, I'm not saying don't face trials, but I'm saying the weightlessness of those trials that white people get to experience, we don't get to experience. So mm-hmm. I would love to see more of that. I would just love to be have a Black author's work be adapted and for it to be as joyous as we are seeing in, you know, the rom-coms that are coming out now. Outside of your own work, which I do think would be a lovely adaptation because you do write banter and dialogue so well. Um, so I would love to see that be brought to life. Um, is there an author that you would say, and also this author would would be a great person to adapt? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think we speak a lot about Talia Hebert in the community, mm-hmm. but she is writing Black women. Um, mm-hmm. Her books are do mainly have interracial relationships, so we're not going to see black romances but we'll see black women and I think she's very defiant in her portrayal of black women as well you know they are uh, a lot of them are neurodiverse as well Mm -hmm. they are you know they have some of them have chronic illnesses some of them Mm -hmm. have you know beliefs I think take a hint Danny Brown you know she's um she she, I think she's a Wiccan or Mm -hmm. you know so you know when do we get to see that type of thing added so casually into a rom-com with a black woman and without the weight that comes usually, you know? And a lot of those authors are authors that are um, are doing it in romance now. So I think, like I said earlier, I think it's an act of defiance to have us be free and happy. And I love that so much. I'm so grateful to be able to see it and to be living in this time now where we are seeing the start of it. I think we can do a lot more. I think publishers are still hesitant to take on, uh, you know, things by authors of color or they, you know, this in their minds, they're still that, oh, but we already have this one author doing this one thing. But I think with Talia's success, especially, I'm very excited because I think, I hope that her success will force more people in the industry to see that it's possible um, and to support us in the same way that other authors get supported. Can I also say something about Talia Hibbert's Brown Sisters series? Sure. None of them are stick thin either. Mm-hmm. So you would also be talking about 
desiring fat bodies. I don't want to mm-hmm. say obese, but or a plus size, whatever you want to say, especially in America, because I do understand that around the world, different sizes are considered differently. But you're talking about women who here would be considered plus size women. So not only are they black, not only are some of them neurodiverse, not only does one of them has is battling chronic illness, mm-hmm. but they also plus size and to lift them up so it would be like saying let's cast Lizzo in a role Mm -hmm. and to be held up as desirable is also an act of rebellion that I would love to see adapted me too that's you know part of that diversity like it and I I know I mean people are whenever there's news that's coming out like about an adaptation or something like how people were freaking out when the little mermaid came out and they were like okay Hallie is gonna play the little mermaid mm-hmm. i was so joyous because firstly mm-hmm. i thought about my kids who are going to see um a black little mermaid and i thought about all the white kids who are going to grow up seeing it and thinking that it's normal so that they're mm-hmm. not going to have those same weights that you know a lot of older white people who didn't grow up seeing that have going into this type of story um but I was also so joyful because (laughs) I was like yes because finally people are realizing that we are here too and Mm -hmm. it was making so many people upset just the fact like they hadn't told anyone any details about this adaptation but people were like oh my word it's going to be terrible like how dare they um make this fictional character a black person um Mm -hmm. and i think that whenever we see those reactions that's where the act of defiance comes in right because we're just saying yes this is what it is you're not even going to get the you know we're not even going to entertain this because finally media isn't only there to be consumed by a white audience and it never has been so it's Mm -mm. It doesn't really make sense for it to be, especially when, um, again, you know, from the American perspective, Black people are one of the largest, if not the largest, consumer group in this country. So if you want to make money, you need to make it from the people who are spending it. Why would you not appeal to them? Mm-hmm. And now people are saying like, yeah, someone like me sees a commercial and I don't see any black people in it. I got to think long and hard. Is this something that I want to spend my resources with? And that's my Uh time, my money, my attention, because we're bombarded with so many things. Why would I spend the precious commodity of time here over something else? I agree. Does not make sense. Lady D, I see you. Yes. Question. Oh, we've kind of, everybody is answering all my questions. So it doesn't, look, so I'll ask my questions when we go further into talking about the book and writing in general. But yes. You want to transition there? So that way you cannot accuse us. Oh, wait a minute. No, I'm stealing your thunder. I'm not accusing anyone of stealing my thunder. I'm (laughs) saying we can continue this conversation because it is a conversation that can be had every day, all day for many years, because we're only scratching the surface of Mm -hmm. making Mm -hmm. media diverse. I mean, whether that's television, whether that's books, whether it's magazines, you know, we're still scratching the surface. Uh, You know, although we've had Ebony and Essence, and we have um, Beverly Jenkins, and now you, we have so many people, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. So we can have this conversation all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it'll be enough for me when we get to have the range of experiences that white people get to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very blunt to say it that way, but I think that's the only way that we're going to normalize it. Yeah, it's very to. true. Absolutely. And from every single realm of it, to have the unlikable Black woman, to have the likable Black woman, to, I mean, it's all, it's different. And I, I recognize that 
our body is so political and we carry so much history with us that it can't be ignored and unfortunately um, in the wrong hands. It comes across inauthentic or wrong sometimes, Mm -hmm. but, and I don't think that we should also settle for crumbs, which is where the loving critique comes in. Like, okay, you've taken this step, but this is how it landed on us. So you've created this thing and here is our feedback or reaction to this thing that you created. And it is our hope that the next person takes a look at that critique and say, okay, I'm going to incorporate that critique and then make this next project better. But it's always a continuing of making the the project and hopefully um, just not just the adaptions because, and I have to say, last week was um, the Pop Culture Association panel and I was one of the presenters and I used one of your tweets about Bridgerton, and Uh I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was your thread and line of questioning about the uh, work you had to do to distance yourself from wanting to enjoy a thing, but also seeing the the flaws in a thing. And um, I was talking about the definition of black baiting um, which came, which was born out of this podcast on Bridgerton. And uh, that is the media and marketing technique where Black people and or Black people's aesthetic are shown, but not fully integrated mm-hmm. into a product to attract people of color, especially Black people, mm-hmm. and use their cachet of cool. And, you know, we had this whole hullabaloo about this white author who named a book Trap Queen Theology Mm. and put a black woman on the cover who, by the way, did not look like a trap queen at all. So there was a disconnect there. But the use of the aesthetic and the terminology, the use of the aesthetic of the stock photo, people, but black culture, black people, they weren't fully integrated in it. So it came across inauthentic, mm-hmm. actually factually wrong. And the publisher pulled it because of the critique. And that's mm-hmm. also part of my point is that casting Black people aren't enough. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same in publishing. You you see, you know, when we whenever we have these conversations about diversity, you know, whenever there's one particular thing that happens and we, everyone's having this conversation and we have publishers who are making statements, Uh, I think a lot of it um, is lip service because Mm -hmm. I want to see where you're, you know, yes, you are committed to diversity, but how, where uh, are you? And not only on your author levels, are you hiring, are your hiring practices doing what you're saying (laughs) you're doing? You know, for the first time in my life, I've, I've published 20 books. Uh, I've been working Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. six years professionally in publishing and for the first time last, Last year, I think with with Anne, they lived at Playable after I had a black editor. And I'm very aware of how lucky I am. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, I'm very lucky I have two editors of color. So at Kensington. So I I find myself, you know, being because I think when you go in, so when I started writing, I was incredibly afraid of writing of not being published because of who I am and where I come from. I started out entering a competition with Harlequin um, and it was open to South Africa, but I was pretty convinced that I wasn't going to get noticed because I'm South African, because I don't come from where most of the authors come from, which is the UK and the US and -hmm. Australia Mm -hmm. and New Zealand, you know, all of these countries that are not um, known for being having uh, people of color as the majority of their population. And so I went in being very vague about wh- what my characters look like. Um, so in my mind, I can honestly not tell you whether or not I thought that they were black or um, or white. I don't think I thought that they were white, but I was very deliberately vague in my explanation of them because I did not want it 
to hurt my chances of becoming published. And that was really because of when I, because when I started out, things in publishing looked very different. We weren't mm-hmm. seeing black people on the covers. We weren't seeing diverse experiences being celebrated. And so I went in with a lot of fear and I felt like I was lucky when I got picked, when I got published. And so I wasn't involved with my, with the cover of my first book. And though I had been vague in my explanations, my characters were, the the characters they put on the cover were white. And that just did not sit right with me. I mean, I was grateful Mm -hmm. for my very first book being published. But when I saw it, I just felt like there was something that was wrong with it. And I realized in that moment that it's because even though I'd been vague, my characters were being coded and framed as white because white Mm -hmm. people were were looking at this and being like, oh, yes, of course, this is is me because they've been centered in media very often, you know? So the long like I think I explained my my female lead as having long black hair and I think she possibly had like green or blue eyes I I mean I live in a world where this is very common in people who look like me you know it's it's you know mm-hmm. it's common enough that if someone described those features to me I wouldn't immediately think that they are white but because I was being um my characters were being read by a white within a white frame, that was automatically what they thought. And after that, I realized I need to be more deliberate. And then I was. And mm-hmm. so now you will see me very explicitly describe the skin color of my characters, the hair texture of my characters, the eye color of my characters, because I don't want, not for me, it's not about the white audience um, in this particular thing Yeah, It's about people who look like me. I want you to see yourselves. And so I made a very deliberate choice. And that was a huge, huge part of my writing career and my writing experience. That particular moment turned things around for me and made me be stopping fearful because I wanted to be defiant. Can I just say right now, 20 books in six years. That's a lot. <laughs> and, and I just want, I mean, I don't know how you how this lands on you at all but really thank you because i know that took a lot to do and when we're talking and just thinking about your contribution to countless people's joy to be seen to i mean to just experience that to be reflected and to be and for it to be done deliberately say no this is for you Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That makes me really emotional, actually, because, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't see it. And so Mm -hmm. to think that my children are going to see it and that a whole generation is hopefully going to see it. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, there were things that brought me incredible joy to write. I I have a lot of I have three royal books and I just felt so wonderful when I was writing it because I was like, we don't get to see this. You know, mm-hmm. what the media we consume, the, you know, this fantasy of royalty that we consume is not, is not meant for us. And so being mm-hmm. able to contribute to that and to be able to say, you know what? Yeah, yeah, we are. And, and, and not be a thing, right? It's not a thing at all. Her race, their races are not an option um, of contention. It's not a point of contention. It's not negotiable it's literally like here you go this is an african royal family dealing with whatever they're dealing with let's watch them fall in love and so it's an honor for me to do it i i am very grateful if it's been consumed in the way that i intended but i'm just honored to be able to contribute to it at all in any way all right well you know what I know I'm looking at the time, so I do want to transition us to talk about And They Live Happily Ever After and quite possibly A Ghost in Shining Armor. Mm-hmm. And if that works for you, does it work for you? Of course. I would love to talk about them. <laughs> the first question that I have is, in your book, you gave a little bit of emphasis about Gaia 
being a South African author with an American publisher. Mm-hmm. You are as well. And yes. can you talk a little bit about that process? Like, were you thinking about like the audience that you were thinking about besides me, who just happens to be an American, <laughs> um, just about writing that process and how Gaia came to be? Yeah, so I think it's been very clear to me from the beginning because I started out with a, a UK publisher who was mainly based in the UK. Um, I worked with the British office, uh, Harlequin's British office, and I've always known that I am an outsider. Uh, I, you know, when in these emails that we often get sent about uh, doing you no know, social events or checking in with one another, you know, I'm always aware of the time difference and I'm always aware that I can't attend anything in person and that when they mention, you know, in order to join this meeting or whatever the case is, you are the countries that we are, the numbers that you have to look and dial in order to participate. You know, South Africa's never on that list. It's always in the, if this does, if, if your country's not here, please click on this link and so I'm always clicking on this link right and so that's something that I've experienced my entire um my entire career I've always known that I am outside of a lot of the experiences that other authors get to have and so I think I wanted to share a lot of that with people who are reading because I know that it's not part of people's general thoughts when they are thinking about authors uh it's not necessarily something you pay attention to. And I think especially with American culture where, you know, American culture is very much about America and that's perfectly fine. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. our culture, a lot of our culture is America as well. So Mm -hmm. I think that just goes to show you how pervasive the American ideal is and how present and pervasive American media is. And so for me, it's always just showing a different side of things and showing what it's like to be outside and what it's like to not be mainstream, you know? So that's what I wanted with Gaia. I wanted to show a little bit of my experience, you know, of very things that I think people take for granted when they think about signings or, you know, something simple like book plates, like going into your book and seeing your book in stores. That is not something Mm -hmm. I get to experience here. I don't Mm -hmm. get to request that my books be sold here, you know, indie bookstores are not huge here. So all of these things are not things that is part of my author experience. And so I just wanted to basically show a little bit of that. Um, And I hope that kind of broadened whoever was reading this book's idea and understanding of the publishing world as well. It did. And it's funny because uh, I introduced us as She's the Sunshine, I'm the Grump. And I have also social anxiety. I, I mean, you, it, she was a brown-skinned woman with curly hair. And if you didn't say glasses, totally could be me. <laughs> <laughs> it totally could be me. So there was a lot of similarities that I saw. And then she made a Game of Thrones reference as well. So I'm like, oh, no, it really could be me. Because I did catch <laughs> that Game of Thrones reference. Awesome. I, I put... Game of Thrones references and Beyonce references. Well, mm-hmm. actually, I put Beyonce references in almost every book, and I love it because once my editor was like, "I know what you're doing here," I was like, "Thank you, thank you for seeing it." <laughs> you know, so um, I, I love doing that, but I don't necessarily because once again, I'm outside of American culture, and so I don't want to because I've read books and mm-hmm. the pop culture is part of the book and it's obviously part of world building in contemporary romances but for people who are not part of that culture it's very isolating and so I try not to do that um and I'm deliberately vague because of that and that's all of part of the experience of not being American (laughs) I guess what's nice about it as well is that you still relate to the character and that's Mm -hmm. what I want to show is that I think it's got to do the same um, idea is when people are like, oh, but I can't relate to black characters falling in love. You can, you know, we all can. 
we people you know if i can relate to aliens falling in love then you can relate to you know because we are mm -hmm. we are all the same so i just yeah i want to show that there's similarities as well mm -hmm. but also celebrate the differences at the same time which is well, very complicated to do very ambitious <laughs> it it is oh go ahead lady j as you said you try to incorporate some of the american culture into your writing um, from your South African viewpoint. Do you find it to be hard to try to intertwine the two? I know you say you do it, but do you find it to be difficult for yourself? Not as, not as much as you think, because mm -hmm. like I said, American culture is incredibly pervasive. A mm -hmm. lot of our, our experiences here are, are westernized and influenced by America. You know, and so even with your politics, which is obviously very contentious, uh, it has an effect here. <laughs> you, you know, you don't get, and, and that's, I think, sort of a very helpless part of it because we get to see what's happening and we kind of have to hold our breath and hope that it goes the right way or else we are affected too, right? In ways that we don't necessarily see um, or that is not known in America, but it happens. So, yeah, I mean, it's not as hard as you'd think because you know, most of what we are consuming here comes from America. We do have properties that are adapted and properties that are created that do feature um, Black people. But in tuning into Netflix, how much of the Black uh, media that, especially Lady D consumes, comes from South Africa? Ah, do you love them? <laughs> I, I love when I get to watch um, the African content. A lot of it actually does not come from South Africa, which is uh, sad. Most of what I do get is Nigerian, which is great as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, you but mean your would, Nollywood movies? Yes. Well, and my Nollywood shows. There's a new one, um, but I haven't gotten to watch it yet. <laughs> so there's Blood and Water that I know is South African. Um, yes. And there is Queen which is also South African. Um, and we have a couple of, I think, movies that are coming up now. I think you a lot, if you really want to watch something that is going to give you an idea of the culture, it's the comedy from South Africa. Okay. Because as a culture, we make fun of ourselves a lot. We get through our trauma by laughing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think you can see that. Um, and and if, you could, if you watch specials like Trevor Noah's earlier specials <laughs> where it's not, once again americanized if you watch you know we have a lot i don't know maybe maybe you don't have the same content in the u.s that we have but we get south african comedians and it's quite funny and very relevant to our culture um so i would suggest that but i, I think we're starting to see more of it come through now and mm -hmm. we are very passionate about supporting our local content so hopefully you'll see more because i think it's the same thing like as black culture in, in america because you're like oh i want more of this thing let me support the thing that we currently have so that we get more mm -hmm. of it mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't necessarily mean you love the content or you're fully supportive of it and you don't find it problematic for example but it just means that you want more so that we get more right well see i thought you were going to talk about how to ruin christmas oh well yeah <laughs> and and Real Housewives of South Africa because she's a she's a Housewives of Durban. Wait a minute, but I haven't but I haven't watched Real South Real Housewives of South Africa, so I haven't. That's what I'm saying. I have not been up to date other than to watch How to Ruin Christmas, um, season one and season two, which I absolutely loved. Um, mm -hmm. So I, yeah, would, so, uh, I would love more and more. But I mean, I think it's also more very affluent. I think like the Real Housewives is not, I think in the same way that it's not a snapshot of American culture, really. <laughs> like, it's not really what a lot of us are going through over here, but it does give you an example of, of some of the cultures here. That's what they give us. And but, uh, she, I'll be honest and say, uh, Lady D's more of the Netflix watcher. I am more of the sci-fi person, so I don't I don't watch Netflix as much as she does. But you always talk about the the Nollywood and all of the other African content. Yeah, and I, African content is is great. We, I think, obviously we don't have the same production value or quality as America, but I think the content of it is incredibly 
wonderful and joyous and dramatic because drama follows us wherever we go, whether we want it to or not. <laughs> well, I don't think I've I don't think I've watched them where I'm like, oh, the production quality has been bad. I think that I look at it as it's shot from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Then, oh, that's so interesting. Then, mm-hmm. uh, then how we shoot in America and film mm-hmm. things. Um, I actually have a relative that is in the film industry, ex- and two people actually. Um, and I just think that it's shot from a different perspective. Um, you know, everything does not have to be shot the way we do it in America. And mm-hmm. I enjoy what I watch that comes from um, Africa. It, I think that in order to get more, though, might have to do as one of our uh, podcasts that we listen to, get a VPN so I can get more of the mm. stories that I would like. Because what comes into American Netflix, I'm sure, is very funneled. Mm. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if that was true for our books as well. And the fact that you're working with an American publisher, I think, helps us be able to have access to your content. But I will say that. Um, if I'm being perfectly honest, you've written over 16 books with Harlequin mm-hmm. and I can't find them in the library. I don't see them on the shelves. Like the mm-hmm. first book that was really publicized here by you was and have and heavily was And They Live Happily Ever mm-hmm. After. This yeah. is how I discovered you. And then I was like, whoa, you have all of these other books? And I, I know. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's difficult because I think some of it has to do with uh, the line I write for. So the line I write for is Harlequin Romance, and it's not in stores in America. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not in, you know, you can order a copy from the Harlequin website from Walmart, I believe, and Target, but you have to actually know about the line and the authors that you like in the line in order to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think part of it is, you know, that. I'm not necessarily one of the most popular authors in category romance. Uh, and you have to have a lot of success, frankly, to be able to to jump out in the marketing. Uh, you have to either, you know, hit the list or you have to sell a lot or you have to write quite fast in order to do that. And so I think Harlequin did their best with the tools that they had for a line like mine, which was smaller and less marketed or, or, or yeah so I, I and on, on the other hand I'm incredibly grateful to Kensington for all the effort that they did because I was included a lot more in the publish in the mm-hmm. marketing as well and the publicity for and they lived happily ever after and I think there were a lot of people uh, reaching for this book and then realizing like you that I have you know a backlist of 19 other books as well I yeah I mean I think it's part and parcel of being published and being in category I think as well in terms of people being able to pick up your books which I do recommend um and they live happily ever after as part of a duet with Mm -hmm. a ghost in shining armor and um, the beautiful thing about this is that it is a paranormal rom-com with a lighter touch in that um, the first book we are dealing with magic but we're not dealing with magic in a uh, a fantasy series sort of way which has its place and i love but is it and when we are transitioning to season two and we're going to be talking about black speculative fiction one of the things that i really enjoyed about this book is to say that magic can be incorporated in one's life without it being one's life. And that Mm. there are different touches and approaches to the speculative. So you've talked about it through the lens of a rom-com where it is a part of Gaia, is something that um, she knows about, but is also exploring because in this book, it's a little bit, she has an experience that she hasn't happened before with her magic. And then later where we, there's, there's a continuation of story um, with the next book 
which I don't want to give too much about because uh, I know that it's coming out. Can you tell us about your approach to magic and rom-coms and mm-hmm. and this book and then uh, the development for the next book? Okay. Thank you for asking this. <laughs> I, I'm was very excited about the idea when I first came up with it. I'm always looking for new ways of telling stories. And I, when I came up with this idea, I thought it was going to be incredibly marketable. Um, but when we went out to publishers, a lot of them came back and said, you know, we just don't know how to sell this book. We oh. don't know how to market it. We don't know where it fits in the market. And this is, I think, prior to the new paranormal rom-com beginning of the wave that we are seeing. I don't even know if we can call it a wave because mm-hmm. I don't think we've seen enough of them. But there are sprinkles of it here and there. And I grew up on, you know, Charmed and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And mm-hmm. I grew up on romance novels that had this little sprinkle of magic in it. And that was, I think, late 1990s, early 2000s, where that was just a part of the contemporary romance. Um, what, you know, the romances that we were seeing and the novels we were seeing, and it was never treated very differently. And so when I went into writing this book, I was like, I'm honoring the formative books of my life. And I enjoyed it, the process of writing this so much, because for me, it was, let's make it about part of their character and their character development. So Gaia in this book is a romance author who loves her romance novels in her dreams. She has the ability to become the female lead of the books that she writes in her dreams. And she can kind of mold the story she's telling in those dreams. And which is obviously a really amazing uh, trick when you're a romance author, right? To be Mm -hmm. able to actually experience it and be like, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't work or this does work. And with uh, Gemma, which is the main character of the second book, she can see ghosts. And this is, again, a very internal thing, right? Like, it's not this world building where, like you said, the fantasy worlds where everyone has special powers and it's a world where everyone knows this. This is a very internal thing. Uh, Gaia has not shared this with anything. And it's part of who she is. You know, she's defined herself by a success Uh, She's defined herself and created a very secure world for herself in this supernatural ability that technically she shouldn't have because no one else does, or at least no one in her experience. The same goes for Gemma, you know, it's part of who she is. She sees it as her purpose in life to be able to help ghosts move on. And it's part of her internal conflict is how can I help a ghost? And how does that define me as a person? And we see a lot of that in both of these books. So for me, it's, it, it was really about internal um, magic and sort of a very, I think, light magic, because I think there's a range of magic as well. And I found that it, for me, really uh, walked, you know, bridged both people who love the contemporary romance and people who love paranormal. And I mm-hmm. hope that was something that, you know, was something fun and new for them to read because I think we've seen a lot of rom-coms and I wanted my book to cater to something a little bit different. I think it did. Uh, We always talk about Black Girl Magic here and it's not the literal form of magic in the way that is normally expressed in television and movies. It is the magic of everyday life of making Mm -hmm. a way out of no way and to see that but just turned up a little bit it was it it really it was refreshing because you know we dealt with the interior lives and um black women contain multitudes Mm -hmm. and that's just a part of it and honestly when uh i'm gonna talk a little bit about the book there and I might cut this out, you know, if it's spoilery. But uh, Gemma meets Gaia at a book signing, and Levi is there. And the way that Gaia looks at Levi, I thought, can she see? Is he real? <laughs> 
that was very intentional because they wanted you know so they obviously are linked by this magical uh, this magical thing um mm-hmm. I, you'll find out more about the link as you read the books but mm-hmm. the point is that they are both sensitive to the supernatural and so she um she does see him and i mean mm-hmm. he's he's there he he is there for everyone to see but she sees mm-hmm. A little bit more because she is sensitive to it and he is spoiler alert he is a ghost so <laughs> um, but that's not really a spoiler because you get to know that fairly quickly mm-hmm. um in in the second book is basically the it's in the blurb so you'll be able to see it and that book is out in september wonderful it's also the perfect time because october is black speculative fiction month so oh. a september release is absolutely positively perfect for people to pick up both books and they lived happily ever after in a ghost in shining armor, mm-hmm. especially as you are uh, black specific fiction being an umbrella term where you can have something from a romance all the way into like the deepest, darkest horror book or media. So I think that this is absolutely perfect timing. I have two questions. Um, who has influenced your writing? Oh, wow. So I have to say, when I started out, um, it was Norda Roberts, which I think is true for most people, because uh, she was really my introduction into romance. I remember discovering her and reading and trying to find every book that I could. And because she was, obviously, that everyone knows who she is, and she's such a big name in romance, her books were very easily found here in libraries and, and stores. We don't have a lot of romance in our bookstores here, but she was there because she's so popular. And then when I got older, I think when I started becoming an author when I started my journey when I became more aware of diverse names that was only when I was an adult already to be honest with you uh, I started realizing hey there's a, a whole world of indie romances and in that mm-hmm. is where we found um, you know a lot of black voices so for me it was seeing people like Alyssa Cole and Rebecca Witherspoon being successful and, you know, getting the dues that they have earned. And then I think uh, seeing Talia as well, Talia's success, uh, mm-hmm. Farah Rashan's uh, success, I, I hope I'm saying her name right, and just seeing, you know, all of these authors do incredibly well for themselves gave me a lot of hope and influenced me by helping me to not be as i said fearful um so yeah i mean i still read their books and i'm so grateful to see that and again so happy to know that this is what our new generation is reading and for us as adults we are finally getting what we deserve and what we should have gotten when we were growing up Mm -hmm. okay now who are you currently reading oh like right now? <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't have to be right this <laughs> but <laughs> recently. Did I, I'm not reading as much as I think I would. Oh, you know, I've actually just discovered audiobooks. And so that's reading. That's reading. Yeah. So I do think I, it's, it's been a game changer for me, honestly, because I can do it while I'm taking care of my kids without them accidentally starting a fire, <laughs> putting their fingers into a plug hole or something. Um, I am reading, I've, this year I've did, um, like I said, Fedor Deshaun's uh, latest book. I've did um, Alicia Dye's book. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to think because a lot of the books I get right now and I have time to read is um, for blurb. It's blurb books. I, I did Andy, Andy J. Christopher's latest book. Um, and then I love fantasy books. I would love to see more of them. Paranormal books, uh, paranormal romances right now is very quiet. Uh, and it's the, the books that we're seeing is already from already established authors. Um, so we're not getting to see as many new voices in paranormal romance, which I would love to see. So, you know, I'm still reading Nalini Singh. Um, I've read mm. Ilona Andrews, whose books are such comfort reads for me right now as well. And... I would just love to see 
even in the paranormal rom-com sphere, more black voices and more voices of color. I've expressed this uh, desire to my publisher <laughs> and to my agent and to my editors and really to anybody who will listen. Please give us more paranormal romances by authors of color. Please give us more paranormal rom-coms by authors of color so that we get to see magic and see the range of it, right? And not again from a white lens. We'd love to see ourselves written from, you know, our own lenses. Mm-hmm. That answers your question. I'm always like so nervous because I'm always thinking, oh, okay, let make sure you include everything that you've been doing. <laughs> and obviously that's not realistic. Um, I think those were my, well, we did talk about a little bit about television and you did recommend some shows. So I'm happy about that. So I'm going to try to find them other ways because I don't think they're all on Netflix. I'm going to, well, at least the Netflix that I can access. Because I was going to say we have obviously our version of like HBO and the networks. Is there anything on those that we should be watching? Try to find? Yeah, so I think uh, The Real Housewives of Durban, is, if you like The Real Housewives, this is something you're going to enjoy. Um, and I'm trying to see, I you know, we have a lot of, shows in different languages yeah because mm-hmm. we have 11 official languages so i i think if you kind of just because also soapies soap operas i don't know what do you call yours what do you call your all my children's and soaps. soap soap okay so all of you know ours yeah are also very big and i think very culturally accurate so i think if you just google south african soap dramas you'll be able to see um based on the cost you'll be able to see what different type of culture you are going to to read about and to watch about um when you watch uh, um, these series mm-hmm. i think those are my questions and we are getting close to time so i'm gonna let lady h wrap it up for us so your heart and mind is clear lady d yes i've asked okay. what i need to ask Alrighty. Well, I won't ask the silly question of like, do you think about those people having sex lives? Because that was a question in your book. But um, (laughs) (laughs) and I started to ask it. It was like, you know what? I kind of do. But (laughs) well, I I was going to say, I think I asked it because I, you know, you sometimes you kind of catch yourself being like, what is what does that look like? (laughs) (laughs) The dynamic there. Mm -hmm, Um, Exactly. Well, then I ask you, is there anything else that you would like to leave us with or say so that um, you leave this recording with your heart and mind clear? I am very grateful again to you for giving me the space to talk about representation in romance. It's something that I'm very passionate about and not something that I always feel comfortable talking about because, you know, it's different speaking about it to an audience of white listeners versus an audience of black listeners or consumers um, or people of color. You know, it's there are nuances. And while I'm not trying to isolate anyone, I think the reality of our experience is that we are always cautious and always careful about what we say and where we say it. And so I'm grateful for spaces where that allow uh, me to talk about it in a way that I don't feel is needs to be tamed. Um, and I don't have to do any work uh, to ensure that it is um, it's understandable in in and not offensive, um, because I think a lot of people do sometimes find offense when you are speaking about your experience and the truth of your experience when they don't understand it. So thank you for that. Uh, I had a wonderful time speaking with you both. And I am so looking forward to your new season because I can't wait to pick up these the decks that are going to come my way and to <laughs> just enjoy the speculative aspect of, of Black media. Well, thank you. Oh, thank Therese you. Bahari has joined us she is a wonderful follow on twitter which you know, everybody knows is lady h's world there is a <laughs> you have a wonderful website um is there any way i there's an ig where i have seen a saint bernard who is gorgeous <laughs> is there any way that people can um connect with you that you'd prefer 
Well, you'll mostly find me on Twitter. That's where I feel most comfortable and also where um, the fewer mem- fewest members of my family follow me so I can be much more <laughs> honest. <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter. I do have a page on Instagram and occasionally you'll see my family and my husband and my two kids. And um, you'll see a lot of quotes from my books and me talking about the content of my books and tropes and all of these things. I'm also on Facebook, but that's mostly updates. So if you are want to engage with me, Twitter would be the best space. Also, I have a contact form on my website and a newsletter. So if you are interested in getting in touch, you can go through any of those avenues. I do get back to you. Awesome. And she does. Thank you so much for joining us, Tourette's. I just want to let the readers know that the warmth and the humor and the laughter and the joy that you've heard in her voice here in this podcast, you will find in her books. So please, please pick them up and enjoy them and then come talk to us about them because I will be happy to do so. And with that, we sign off. So bye. 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 Thank you. You're welcome. Just for you, Therese, the Mm -hmm. dynamic, I'm going to put our dynamic, I realize this, in romance trope terms. Okay. She's the sunshine, I'm the grumpy. I love that. That's awesome. I I love that you're explaining it to me in terms that I understand as well. (laughs) All right. Well, see, I did something right. So there you go. You're smiling already. Okay. All right. We ready? We are. Thanks for coming along on another fantastic journey. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to our podcast and your favorite pod catcher. Let us know what you think of this episode by tweeting us at watchwithyoupod, sending us an email at watchwithyoupod at gmail.com, or leaving us a review. And please spread the word. Add us to your syllabi and cite us.